This week on Monday or Tuesday, I was uh, writing the sermon, and sometimes the introduction comes right at the beginning of the sermon, and sometimes you get most of the sermon written, and then you get the introduction. Well, this week I had most of the sermon written, and I was sort of praying through what would be the right introduction that would sort of uh, allow us to think about this topic, and a, a movie came to mind. It was a movie from my childhood, and it was a movie that was very dark. And so I thought, you know what? We're thinking about spiritual warfare. Here's a movie that has, uh, portrays violence and darkness. And I thought, well, that's going to be perfect. So I wrote up this whole opening introduction. And then, as we're going through the week, thinking about the reality of this, on Thursday night, uh, we get this news that at the premiere of Batman in Colorado, there is this horrific uh, display, which can only only be described as evil. (laughs) That whether you are uh, the incumbent Democratic president or the Republican uh, presumptive nominee, both have no other words except it's evil. And it's a reminder that what we're talking about here, this is not some theory. This is not some joke. There is evil in this world. Uh, And sometimes we get, get a glimpse of it and we think the only explanation is that we have a supernatural enemy who wants to destroy all things. There's no mercy, there's no grace in him. He has no regard for life. He wants only to destroy and to capture and to to reap destruction on us. And I'm thinking, well, it can't be a coincidence that as I was thinking through the connection between sort of evil and a movie that I was thinking about, that this was happening this week, Now, the movie that came to my mind was not a Batman movie. It was a movie from my childhood, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now, when this movie came out, it created quite an uproar. Whereas Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was the first movie in the trilogy, had been sort of a lighthearted action adventure that was just, it was good fun. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom comes out, and it's dark. And it's scary. And it creates quite an uproar among uh, parents at the time because it had a PG rating. In fact, the PG-13 rating was created in part because of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. In particular, there was one scene. It's unfortunately the most memorable scene in the movie. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And it's a scene where you have a satanic figure, a High priest Mola Ram is his name. And he grabs hold of the living heart of a person. And it's this very evil, horrific, satanic moment. And he pulls this heart out. And that to me is sort of the, the epitome of the darkness of the movie. Now as I, that movie came to mind, I began to try to research a little bit about it so I could have some things to say about it. And I was trying to figure out why did that movie come to mind? What I found out in researching it is is that the person who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark was offered the script idea to write uh, the script for Temple of Doom as well, and he turned it down. This is what he said when he saw the script idea. He said, and why he turned it down. I just thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think Temple of Doom represents a chaotic period in both their lives, and by there he means George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, the producer and director, in both their lives, and the movie is very ugly and mean-spirited. The reviewer in People magazine, of all places, 
actually said that any parent who takes their child to see the Temple of Doom is committing cinematic child abuse. He went on to say, in the movie, there are no heroes, only two villains, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Even Steven Spielberg himself agreed. Looking back later on the movie, he said this, I wasn't happy with Temple of Doom at all. It was too dark, too subterranean, and much too horrific. Now, the interesting thing, I didn't know this until I started researching for the sermon. Most people recognize that the reason the movie is so dark is because both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were at a very dark period in their life. They were both in the midst of divorcing their wives. And it's interesting to me that in the midst of these two acts of rebellion against the God-ordained mandates about marriage, that while both these guys are engaged in that, that the darkness going on in their life subconsciously makes its way onto the screen. And it wasn't lost on me that the epitome of the darkness in the movie is a scene where a satanic figure reaches in and grabs hold of the heart of an innocent victim. And that what dawns on me is what's happening in that movie is it is a unconscious playing out of what's going on in their lives. That this spiritual reality that we're talking about, that there is satanic forces in this world and that they seek to control and to destroy that what was going on in these two guys' lives found its way onto the print of the movie. And in many ways, that scene, which you can understand why I'm not showing you the clip this morning, that scene is a visual image of the reality of the spiritual warfare that Paul's talking about in Ephesians. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Ephesians 6. Because what we're seeing in that visual idea about a satanic attack on the heart is exactly what Paul is warning is, is warning can happen to us, that we're in danger of experiencing the same thing. Ephesians 6, if you need a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. It's page 830 in those Bibles. I'm going to read just a phrase out of verse 14. While you're turning... Let me tell you that this summer we have been doing a series on spiritual warfare out of Ephesians chapter 6. And spiritual warfare in its uh, simplest definition is the recognition that we are in a battle. That there is an enemy and it's not a human, it's not society, it is Satan. And although the world tells us, no, no, there's no evil, that occasionally we see certain events or certain people whom the only explanation is, is that they are being controlled by the evil one. And God reminds us, no, 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 there is a battle and it's very real and it's very dangerous. But the good news is, is that God has equipped us to stand in the midst of the battle that no matter how strong the evil, God is stronger. And that he's given us his own armor, the armor of God, which causes us to stand. And we've been looking at the pieces of armor. We started last week by looking at Satan's greatest power, his scariest power, which is the ability to deceive. 
But God has given us a piece of armor, the belt of truth, which allows us to withstand his deceptions. This morning, we look at the second piece of armor that God has given to each and every Christian here this morning. Look with me in verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And here's the second piece. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. The breastplate of righteousness in place. What we have on the platform is an example of an ancient Roman breastplate. Now some of you may look at that and go, well that's not what I was thinking of. It wasn't what I was thinking of either, but we researched it, this is it. (laughs) But this is the breastplate for a foot soldier. You may be familiar with the breastplate a gladiator might have worn or a Roman general. There are different versions, but this is a very valid example of what a foot soldier would be wearing in the Roman army, uh, and this is a breastplate. Now, the most salient feature when you look at this piece of armor is that it is designed to protect your vital organs. That in a kind of warfare where you are most likely going to be killed by a dagger or a sword or a spear, or an arrow, that this is protecting the most important part of your body, that in many ways, this breastplate protects your life. So whereas last week we looked at the belt of truth, and saw that the belt of truth deserves pride of place among the armor because it's the first thing we put on, and everything else sort of builds off of that, The breastplate has its own unique sort of pride of place, if you will, because it's designed to protect life. That here in the center of our bodies are where the vital organs are. And that if you're wearing a breastplate, it's designed to protect those organs from attack. Now, of all of the organs that the breastplate is designed to protect, the most important one is, of course, your heart. Now, in the ancient world, the idea of a heart was more than just this organ that pumped blood. Back then, they thought of many of the things that we today associate with the mind as going with the heart. For example, they thought of the heart as being the place where your personality resided. That your heart was the place where you made decisions. It was your, where your will was. That the control of your body was associated with your heart. Now we see vestiges of this in phrases we still use today like, you've got to have heart. Or, isn't she a sweetheart? Or, I love you with all of my heart. Or when the Bible says, my heart is steadfast, O Lord. That what the heart is, is that it's the seat of decision making. It's the seat of personality. It's where your will is, where your life is. This is why, as an aside, what it means to ask Jesus into your heart does not mean to sort of open up your chest and have him sort of in there for a while so you can carry him around like he's in your pocket. That's not what it means. What it means is, is allow him access to the place in your life where your decisions are made, where your personality is, that Jesus in your heart is inviting the Lord of the universe to come into your life and be in the seat of decision-making to control your thoughts and your will, to take our personality and conform it to his. That to ask Jesus into your heart is not a sentimental, warm, fuzzy kind of thing. What it is is to invite the Lord of the universe 
to take up residence in your will, your personality, your thoughts, and your very life. The breastplate is meant to protect our heart. That like in the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that what Satan wants to do is reach his hand into our chest and manipulate and control our decisions, our will, and our very life. And the breastplate is designed to stop him from doing that. Now, what is this breastplate? Well, the text tells us it is the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, it's the breastplate which is righteousness. Righteousness is our breastplate. That for Christians, it's not a piece of metal. It's righteousness. Now, what's righteousness? Well, righteousness is purity. It's holiness. The opposite of righteousness is sin. 1 John 3, verses 7 to 8, gives a nice illuminating text to help us understand what Paul's talking about here. There, John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That righteousness is doing the right thing. Its opposite is sin, which is not doing the right thing. Righteousness is obeying God. Sin is disobeying God. And what John is saying is the righteous person is the one who does what is right, and they are controlled by the righteous one, Jesus. The person who does sin is controlled by the one who has been sinning from the beginning, the evil one. The breastplate is righteousness. Now notice from the text that it says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The idea is is that it's already there. Because the righteousness that Paul is talking about here is not our righteousness. The point is not, he's saying, hey, look, make sure you do enough good deeds that you build up some armor in this area so that when Satan tries to grab hold of your heart, he's not able to. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is when you and I became Christians, Christ gave us his righteousness. It was a present a gift to us, just like a piece of armor. You don't make your own breastplate. Someone gives you a breastplate and you put it on. So too, when we became Christians, we don't make our own righteousness. Christ gives us his obedience, his righteousness, and it's on us. That's why Paul is saying, look, leave it there. If you want to stand against Satan, if you are a believer, you have been given all the righteousness that you need for protection against the evil one. But the imperative to you and I is leave it in place. See, this is why Satan comes to tempt us to sin. Because what sin is, is taking off our breastplate. Once we sin, we take off the protection And now our heart is accessible. See, apart from sin, he can't touch us. 
This is why so much spiritual warfare is a result of either our sin or the sin of others against us. The reason Satan has no control over Jesus is because Jesus doesn't have any sin. So when Satan comes and tempts us, what he's trying to do is he knows you already have the righteousness of Christ in place and he can't touch your heart. But if he can get you to sin, then what you're effectively doing is taking off this breastplate. And once there's no breastplate, he reaches right in and grabs control of your will, your decisions, your life, and your heart. And I say, wait a minute. Everybody sins. Yes, great. Jesus didn't. I get that. But are you really saying that when I turn to my roommate and I make a sarcastic, cutting comment to that person that at that moment, suddenly the breastplate is gone and my heart stands exposed and Satan's going to come in and control my life? Are you saying just one sin like that? Not really. Those who have dealt with spiritual warfare and have had experience with this have recognized that there are certain sins that seem to expose us to Satan's control and influence more than others. Now hear me right. Any sin, any sin that is a part of our life can be used by Satan and exploited by him. But there are certain categories of sin that connect, that he connects to more than others, that he's able to use more easily than others. This is why in the Bible, certain sins are associated with Satan more than others. Now again, any sin can be used by him. But I think there are at least five categories of sins that uniquely demonstrate Satan's influence in our lives, meaning if you see this sin, Satan's there, and offer him control of our hearts in unique ways. The first of those five categories of satanic sins is what we might call sins of the will. These are things like defiant disobedience, rebellion, a lack of submission. Take the example of Judas. When Judas betrays Jesus, it's a rebellion against the Lord of the universe. It's a refusal to submit to Christ's leadership and lordship. And the Bible says of Judas that when he goes to betray Jesus, that Satan has entered into his heart. That there are other sins that the disciples do throughout the Gospels. Those are not associated with Satan in the same sort of way. But this sin, this act of defiant rebellion against God, opens Judas up to Satan's control and demonstrates the presence of Satan in his life in a, in a unique way. And that's why it's not coincidence that Judas's life ends in suicide. Because suicide, in many ways, is sort of the ultimate expression of rebellion against God. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin. Hear me right. Suicide sin is not murder. Suicide sin is rebellion. It's a refusal to allow God to be the one who decides when life ends. It's a refusal to allow God to be the one who decides whether life has value or not. In suicide, what we're essentially doing is trying to take back from God the right to judge. And I say, my life's no good. 
We don't have the right to say that. That's why it is an act of rebellion. And that's why suicide, whether it's an attempted suicide or witnessing the suicide of another person, has such strong demonic overtones to it. That people who have been around that experience spiritual warfare. It's because it's the sin. It's an act of defiance. It's an act of disobedience. But you know, it's not just suicide. A child who is openly rebellious to their parents, that's a sure sign Satan is somewhere in the mix. A wife who refuses adamantly to submit to her husband. A pastor who refuses to submit to the elders who are over him. These are signs that Satan is present and they are the ways in which we take off our breastplate and allow him access to our hearts. The sins of the will have a unique connection to Satan. Now there are other sins in this area as well like anger. Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. That when we get angry, you know how it's like. You feel like you're out of control. The reason you feel like you're out of control is because you are out of control. Somebody else is now in control. That when you allow yourself to get angry, what you do is say, hold on a second. Let me take off this breastplate. Now let me talk to you. Well, what you just did is you took off the breastplate. Satan grabbed hold of your heart and he said, now let me tell you what you're going to say. And suddenly it's not you saying it anymore. This is why when someone is physically abused, physical abuse usually comes out of anger. And anger shows the control of Satan. And someone who's been the victim of physical abuse will often show spiritual scars long after those physical ones may have healed. Meaning that they've come in contact not just with an angry father or an angry spouse, but come in contact with the evil one in some way that is painful in the spirit, far more than simply physical pain. These are also sins like the unwillingness to forgive. You see, when Jesus and Stephen are attacked by those under satanic influence, they say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As a result, their breastplate remains firmly in place and Satan has no access to their heart. But here's how tricky Satan is. He not only gets the father or the husband or the whoever who engages in physical abuse, he also gets the victim by convincing them not to forgive those who have hurt them. And he gets you coming and going. And through that decision not to forgive, Satan reaches right in and grabs control. Second category of satanic sins, those that show evidence of Satan or give him access in a unique way are what we might call sins of evil. By this I mean things associated with sorcery, witchcraft, the occult, tarot cards, Ouija boards, New Age uh, activities, Neo-Druidism, Wiccan, all of these kinds of things which are very real and very present right here in West Michigan. You see, we think some of that stuff is just sort of a joke. Maybe you're a teenager here and you've been to a party recently and there was a Ouija board and you're like, well, what's a big deal? Lots of people were playing. It was kind of fun. We all laughed about it. Well, they may have been playing it and nothing may have happened to them. Part of that may be because Satan's not interested in them. He may already have them. You're the one he wants. <clears throat> and all he has to do is wait for you to get engaged. You see, he's not a fool. He's not off duty. All he has to do is get a little opening, and once that breastplate comes down, then he comes in. 
And the point is, is all of this stuff is very real. And I can give you hundreds of stories of people who thought they were just playing around with something and suddenly realize, you know, Satan doesn't play games. He does this stuff for real. And there is a whole world of the occult, a whole world that opens the door to Satan in a unique way. Third category of satanic sins, what we might call sins of the soul. In spiritual warfare lingo, this is known as soul ties. And what soul ties are, are inappropriate emotional or sexual relationships with another person. An inappropriate emotional or sexual relationship, meaning outside the bounds of marriage. The reason it's soul ties is that from the Bible and from experience, we have recognized that when you are emotionally connected in a deep way with somebody who's not your spouse, when you are sexually connected with somebody who's not your spouse, there is a union that forms between those two people. And what that is, is basically you've taken off your breastplate and your heart is connected to another person. And Satan uses that connection to come in through them towards you or through you towards them to begin to exercise control. This is why somebody who's in the middle of an emotional affair, they think to themselves, yeah, I could stop loving this other person whenever I want it. Uh-uh. Satan's got his hand right on your heart. You're not going to be able to feel emotions the right way anymore. He's going to be manipulating and twisting. <clears throat> That's what he does. You've opened the doorway to him. This is why inevitably, inevitably, any couple that I meet with who are sexually active, even though they got married afterwards, anybody, there's always marriage issues. There's always the presence of darkness until that sexual sin before marriage is confessed and dealt with. It's always there. It's because it's a soul tie. <clears throat> that even though it was your fiance, even though it was your boyfriend, even though it was your girlfriend, what you did in that act is you took off your breastplate of righteousness and you gave Satan access to your heart. Fourth category of sins. What we might call sins of the world. <clears throat> Here I'm thinking first of the abuse of alcohol or other drugs. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, don't get drunk, instead be filled with the Spirit. The filled with the Spirit is the idea of let the Spirit control you, and the opposite of the Spirit control you is alcohol controlling you. But then you think about that for a minute. But alcohol is an inanimate object. How could it control anybody? Well, it's not the one doing the control. What you're doing is, is through the abuse of alcohol, you've taken off your breastplate of righteousness and now Satan can come right in. He's the one doing the controlling. The alcohol is just the means. This is why when people get drunk, they don't spontaneously start doing good things. It's because it's not the spirit who walks in. When people get drunk, they start doing bad things because the evil one is now in control. The same is true, though, of Greed. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot love God and money. Well, that's the way we translate it. What it literally says in Greek, and some of you may remember this from the King James Version, no one can serve God and mammon. Mammon is the personification of money. He's a false god. What Jesus is saying, hey, look, there's two gods who want control of you. One is Yahweh, the other is mammon. 
He comes into your life through the love of money. Well, who's mammon? Well, it's Satan. That's why greed is considered idolatry. Is because when we allow the love of money or the pursuit of money, we've basically taken off our breastplate. This is why gambling or shoplifting or embezzling or corporate greed seems so entrenched and so hard to get out of. It's because they are. That through that love of money, mammon or Satan has grabbed hold of our heart and has begun to twist our emotions, our decisions, our will to follow his. Finally, the fifth category. And this is the one that is most pervasive. And if I had to pick one sin that was uniquely connected with Satan, it would be this one. It's what we might call sins of the tongue, or in other words, lying. That if there's one sin that is connected to Satan in a unique way, it is lying. He is the father of lies. That means all lies find their source ultimately in him. That if you take a sin of the will like deviant uh, disobedience or rebellion, somehow lying will be associated. Sins of evil, lying will be associated with them. Emotional affairs or sexual affairs, lying will be associated with them. Sins of the world, alcohol abuse, greed, lying will somehow be in the mix. Where there is compulsive lying, you will always, always, always find Satan. Always. That if your child is regularly lying to you, Satan is somehow in the mix. If your spouse is regularly lying to you, Satan is somehow in the mix. If a coworker, if a friend, if you are regularly being lied to or deceived or are doing that, Satan is in the mix. But somehow when we choose to lie, we uniquely take off this breastplate and Satan's got our heart. And that when you find lying, this is why in Acts chapter five, in the early church, When Ananias and Sapphira, the first sin in the early church is a lie. And they come and they lie about how much money they had given to the church. And Peter says to them, how has Satan so filled you that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? That when you see lying, Satan is engaged in a unique and powerful way. Engagement with any of these five categories of sin will uniquely open us up to the power of Satan to control us. And these categories of sin, when you see them, when you see a person consumed by anger, when you see a person who's unable to engage in a sexual uh, immorality and unable to break it off, when you see somebody addicted to pornography, when you see somebody involved in the occult, these are telltale signs that what's going on is spiritual warfare. These five categories of sins, especially now any sin can be used by Satan, but these seem somehow to open us up to him in unique way. Now you may be sitting there and saying, well, what do I do? I didn't know this. I I took off my breastplate. Uh, My now wife and I didn't realize that we weren't supposed to be sleeping together. We didn't realize the consequences. What if you're here this morning and you feel Satan's dark, icy fingers wrapped around your heart? What do you say? Well, how do I put the thing back on? What do I do now that the darkness is all around me? What do I do now that I've been sucked into this kind of stuff? He deceived me. What hope is there for me now if this morning 
I feel the presence of his control, that he's the one pulling the strings. Help me. The answer to how you are helped comes, I think, beautifully. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Now he's put it in very stark terms, and that's because what we're dealing with is a stark reality. This is what James says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the promise of God that if Satan's got a hold of your heart and you submit yourself to God, he must let go. He must flee from you. It doesn't matter how deep in he is. It doesn't matter how strong that hold is. If you submit yourself to God, Satan must flee. It's a promise of living God himself. Now, how do you submit to God? Well, you come near to God and he will come near to you. Well, how do you do that? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You thought that emotional affair was great. You were having the time of your life. Change your joy to gloom. You thought that pornography was no big deal. You thought that lying was no problem. You thought the stealing and the gambling were no. Change your laughter to mourning. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. If sin is how you take off your breastplate, confession is how you put it back on. Remember, the default state for a Christian is we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We stand with his righteousness protecting our heart. It's only a decision of our will to take it off that gives Satan access to our heart. He doesn't normally have access. It's our decision to take it off and to sin that gives him access. The way you overcome that is not do a bunch of good deeds to make up for it. The way you overcome it is you come before God and you humble yourself and you get down on your knees and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. You told me not to lie and I did it anyway. You told me not to get involved in those practices and I did it anyway. You told me not to disobey my parents and I did it anyway. Please forgive me. Now look, what James is talking about is not just like, yeah, okay, fine, God, I guess I did some things wrong, sorry. He's talking about grieve, mourn, wail, be cut to the heart, get the fact that Satan's got a hold of you, that what you've done is dishonored God, fall to your knees, humble yourself. And God says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just and I will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That when you're cleansed of unrighteousness, the breastplate of righteousness is back on. And Satan has access no more. That's why from last week, one of the lies he tells is that you can't be forgiven. Because if you, can't, if you think you can't be forgiven, you won't come confess. Not in this way. And if you don't come confess in this way, he'll keep hold of your heart. But if you in honesty pour out your heart to the Lord and say, look, help me. I don't feel it right now. I don't even feel like a Christian. I don't feel like there's anything I can do. Look, it doesn't, say, it doesn't say make this decision and know in your heart. Basically what it says is acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you made a mistake and have given Satan access to your heart. And when you do that, God says, I'll put that breastplate of righteousness back on. And when the breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness is on, there is nothing that Satan can do to get at your heart. It is completely and totally protected from him. So Paul says, stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness securely 
in place. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, uh, I need to do this right now. I feel Satan's hand in my life. I feel the darkness around me. Maybe you're here with your spouse and you're thinking to yourself, we weren't faithful before we were married. We did some things we shouldn't have done and that's part of the reason why we're struggling in this area. Maybe you're here and it's been lying or defiant disobedience or whatever it might be. We want to give you an opportunity during the next two songs we're going to sing. We've just sort of left the stairs open. If you want to come and confess and grieve and mourn and wail and pour out your heart to God, this is the place to do it. Now you say, well, can I just go home and do it? You can. But you remember the verse says, humble yourself before the Lord. This is a very humbling thing. This is part of the act of obedience to come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Now, if you want somebody to pray with you when you come down front, you can just sort of raise your hand or make an indication to me or someone else, and I'll be glad to come and pray with you. While you're here, if you want to just confess and make things right with the Lord, come and do that right now. We're going to give you a chance during these next songs, as the Spirit moves in your heart, to be set free of Satan's control of your actions, your will, your emotions, your personality. Come, humble yourself before the Lord and confess that you might be restored and forgiven.